KQED. Hello, I'm Queenie Kim, and welcome to Smart Mouth, where we bring you a digest of the week's news, and we try to sound smart about it. Here with me today is Dan Brecky, editor of KQED's blog, News Fix. Hey, that Dan. Is, that is true. And special guest, Guy Marzarotti, producer of the California Report, who's sitting in for Joshua Johnson. Happy to be here. Well, you are the guest, so you get to go first. All right, I got my hot take ready to go. Come on, new guy. Yes, so... I'm going to be talking about the failed reform, failed Ellis Act reform. Uh, this is a law that allows, state law that allows landlords to clear out tenants um, if they want to sell a building or if um, they want to get out of the landlord game. But it could also be abused by speculators who move in and want to flip the property. Anyway, State Senator Mark Leno from San Francisco has failed to reform or amend the Ellis Act uh, in Sacramento. And his revision basically would have... Um, made landlords uh, stay in a building for five years before they do anything. Now, I'm here to say I'm not surprised. If you look at the impact of of real estate interest in the state going through the current legislature, if you look at their last campaign reports, 34 senators and 69 assembly members got money from the California Association of Realtors. That's not even including local real estate associations. So this was a reform effort targeted just at San Francisco. So if you think this is hard uh, to accomplish, imagine something like a, I don't know, potential split role uh, reform of Proposition 13 that's being floated for the 2016 ballot. I think just another example of the effectiveness of the real estate interest uh, at our state capital. Well, here's the one thing I don't get about this. It did apply only to, to San Francisco. Yes. You would think that that would take, you know, you're talking about you know the the industry's contributions across the board, and that's most districts. I mean, thirty nine out of forty state senators, thirty four, yeah, thirty four out of forty. Okay, and I mean, so they, they they're covering the board. But if if the change is only targeted to San Francisco, uh, really, how is that going to impact anybody else? Um, well, yeah, I think this is something that's also bubbling up in L.A., but you're right. This is the San Francisco's only state senator bringing this reform targeted only to San Francisco. So why he can't he get, get it through? Well, you know, San Francisco's local real estate association came out vehemently against this. So, Well, can we question why we need to get this through? Here's why the proponents yeah. of this move say we would need to get it through. Uh, San Francisco is experiencing... Uh, as we all know, historic uh, tension in the real estate market. That's taking the form of lots of evictions. It's true that studies show that a relatively small minority of those evictions are Ellis Act evictions. And, and specifically what happens, I mean, Guy alluded to this, somebody buys a property or they've owned a property for some time, and they decide they're tired of being a landlord, or they've bought this property, and you know we're not really buying it to be a landlord. We can take it off the market, uh, go out of the landlord business, and kick out our tenants. That's how it works. Now, that is done relatively infrequently. What uh, Leno's law would have done was to, what, create a five-year waiting period after a purchase for yeah, people so to you, do that. you would have to own the building for five years before you do anything. So so the reason the proponents want this to happen is anything to put the brakes on evictions in a market that has become insanely expensive and where people are are being displaced. And and by the way, we just have a senior arts editor who came to work here who put out a plea during our daily news meeting. If anybody knows of a place, maybe uh you know, maybe they could help me out because it's insane out there. So that's why people want this to happen. 
All right, so you're saying that this is happening because it's sort of an example of how lobbying can really... Yeah, I'm, I'm, what? I like, think I mean, my point is if you can't even get a... If you're talking about a reform supported by the only state senator of a city, also supported by the mayor of that city, also supported by the supervisors in that city, if that can't get done, then forget about statewide you know, property reform that anything that the real estate uh, interests are against. Because if you can't get something as micro-focused as this done... Then what, what can get done? Yeah. See, all right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the contrarian here. Do you think this could be a backlash against just, you know, on the other hand, there's the other nightmare stories from the landlord's point of view. And I've actually even had friends who've been in this position who, you know, rented their house out for a year at cost because they didn't want to make any money. They wanted to come back. You know, they were leaving San Francisco for the year and they tried to evict their tenants because they had to move back in, which was all agreed on. And they had to pay them 20, like 10,000 bucks a piece. But my point is, it's like, do you think this is a backlash against sort of the very like uh, strong tenants rights laws here? And like property owners are sick of it. No. Really? No. And the reason is because what happens on the state level here has no impact on local rent control and and eviction control laws. I mean, those laws are tough. They're not... I'm just uh, talking sentiment. I mean, I know it might not have any legal impact. Yeah, but I also think that... I think think Leno made an honest effort, at least, to uh, exclude kind of the mom-and-pop landlord supers that you're talking about. Okay, so it did. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but I think once this bill was black-marked from the jump by real estate uh, interest and, and... I don't think it really stood a chance. I mean, last year it was it was able to make it further. Uh, it was able to clear one body, but yeah. Well, it's like, and it's not completely dead. I mean, no, uh, it's not. It's it's on a two. It year, becomes so, a yeah. right two year bill, so it could come back in some form next year. Thanks. All right, Dan Brecky. I'm sorry, I have to talk about the Bay Bridge uh-huh. again. Caltrans has some great news for us. Uh, there's been a concern with 424 rods that anchor that beautiful. 520-foot-high white tower for the new eastern span. The concern is it was discovered that these these great big pieces of steel that are supposed to stop the tower from tipping over in an earthquake have been soaking in water for years. So water and steel don't mix. It causes corrosion. And there is a concern that maybe this is going to uh, reduce the, uh, the lifetime of the bridge or could even maybe make it less uh, uh, strong in an earthquake or something like that. So Caltrans went and tested these 424 rods, or most of them. They tested everything that they could reach. And they had a test where they violently pull and, and try to dislodge these things. They're, they're all encased in concrete. And in more than 99% of the cases, the rods look fine. So that's really great news. That's great news. Okay, well, let's go on to the next thing. How do you reconcile that with all the bad news? And then what does that mean that all those other so now the problem's solved? Is that is that the no, is that the upshot now? No, and, and of course I'm kidding. Let's let's go on to the next thing. Here's the real problem. Two of the rods didn't didn't pass the test. They're broken. Or they appear to be broken. Now they've got to take these rods out and they have to figure out why they broke. Um the I mean just the the fact that two of the two rods out of 408 that they were able to test uh, broke is going to be another cloud over the future of this bridge and of course the 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 real thing to keep in mind here is that the 
The bridge was designed to last 150 years and to resist strong earthquakes for 150 years. We sunk $6.5 billion into it almost. So is this the same rods that were like, are these different from the other things that were malfunctioning or are we talking about the same thing? I'm just getting very confused here. I don't even really know what's happening with this bridge, quite frankly. And I think this gets to the point of like, even when everybody says it's all safe, there's been so much going on with this. I mean, to your point, Dan, it does sort of erode public trust. It's hard to understand what to, what what I'm trying to get my mind around. Is it safe? Is it not safe? It's safe one day. It's not the other. Well, you can you can check out the movie San Andreas uh, this weekend. Does it go? Does it and tip over? I don't know. I have not. Is seen it, it but after I, I a bridge assume, inspection that I, it tips yeah, over? I assume the welding. Well, comes l- apart. look at. I mean, here here's the thing. It's you 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 don't really know uh, what the future holds, right? Um, I guess that's a grand philosophical statement. You know, the historical parallel I know about this that I like to to treat people to is that when the Brooklyn Bridge was being built, did I tell you this one before? When the Brooklyn Bridge was being built, and it was finished in 1883, they found very late in the construction that one of the contractors had been weaving substandard steel into the cables that are holding the bridge up. That was a pretty big problem. The chief engineer actually worked on finding this out and and uh, making sure that the, the board of directors of the bridge knew about it. The public was never told. But anyway, the bridge was designed with so much redundancy, and the steps they took to weave extra wire into the cables appears to have worked pretty well. That bridge is still in very heavy daily service. And if you've been in New York, you know that it's been re. In, in in essence, remade several times. They've reconfigured the bridge. They're always working on it. And that's another thing. that That's the life of these bridges. They're not static entities. They're always evolving. They're, they're sort of living. So you know at some point you're going to have to do some work. Look at the Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay Bridge, uh, the old Bay Bridge, under constant uh, uh, maintenance because that's how you keep them alive. So you would like to know... Once and for all, the bridge is going to perform to its design task, and we have nothing to worry about, especially since we put all this money into it. Yes, that's Uh, what I want to know. Right. And the likelihood is that's absolutely true, but it won't be trouble-free. And I guess what the example the Brooklyn Bridge is supposed to show is it never is. That feels really unsatisfying to me. All right. Well, here's my uh, my thing. FIFA is soccer's governing body, uh, and it runs, you know, it runs a World Cup. And this week, you, the U.S. Attorney General says it's indicting 14 soccer officials and marketing executives for racketeering, wire fraud, money laundering conspiracies. So basically, uh, the U.S. Attorney General is accusing them of getting illegal kickbacks and bribes, totaling up to $150 million, I guess, in bribes. Uh so I think this isn't big news. Uh, people have known that FIFA or there have been allegations that FIFA has been corrupt for many years now, right? So here's my question, though. Why is the U.S. Attorney General spending our treasure, our resources going after FIFA? Like, who is getting hurt here that we should be spending our resources doing this? And according to the New York Times, they spent Four, the FBI spent four years on this investigation. As far as I can tell, FIFA doesn't really get any money directly from the government. So this isn't like the United Nations or something where we every country sort of kicks in, you know, a certain amount of money to keep that alive. So you're um, saying their priority should be 
not this. Yeah, and let's contrast that against, uh, you know, uh, I guess the the lack of indictments a lot of people have pointed out after the Great Recession mm. with all the banks. And- well, I mean, I will say one, uh, the Attorney General, now Attorney General Loretta Lynch, who was the attorney leading the FIFA investigation, in the Eastern District, she did get a billion out of uh, Bank of America. She did get seven billion out of Citigroup. So, she, I mean, she's not exactly, she, she, you know. A slouch. She, she's not a slouch. But I, but I do take your point that this was kind of low-hanging fruit in the idea that everyone knew FIFA was, you know, to get a World Cup, you kind of had, you were, they were handing over suitcases of cash to these guys. So Did everybody know that? I didn't know that. I thought it was probably just wire transfers. Well, and then that, and then this begs a question. <laughs> this begs a question too, because uh, it was very far down on the New York Times story, they were saying, uh, and I'm sort of quoting here. So uh, it basically says that uh, Lynch says that FIFA officials used American banking system as part of their scheme. They clearly thought the U.S. was a safe financial haven for them. I mean, that just begs so many questions. Like, is it could it be true that the banks had no idea that uh, FIFA was using them in this way, even though it's been widely alleged that FIFA is a, a corrupt organization? They're using our banks, and um, somehow the banks are victims in this. I'm sure they made a lot of money off of these wire transfers well, I'm and I'm not whatnot. sure they're saying that. I mean, the interesting question would be, do the banks have some legal liability down the road? Will there be some inquiry into what they knew about their customers? There are laws in place that are supposed to uh, force them to scrutinize certain transactions. I mean, that's all speculative on my part. I have no idea. But, I mean, I, I think the only importance of that right now is that it gives American law enforcement a nexus to go after these people. To go because, after- as you're, because, I mean, where did these arrests take place? I think there was a meeting in Switzerland. Switzerland. Right? Switzerland. And, and so, I mean, they raided some five-star hotel exactly. going after they some of these guys. They waited until they were all meeting together, and uh, the Swiss agreed, I guess, to allow the U.S. to extradite these guys, which they wouldn't do if it was a tax-related uh, investigation. But I just don't get why the U.S. is involved in this, why we care, who's really getting hurt. Is it the tax—I mean, can we make a case that it's American citizens, it's American taxpayers, it's American government? I mean, what 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 is our interest in this? Four I'm not sure what you're— years of FBI investigation? Look, I'm not sure what Aren't you're proposing. If they have they knowledge, uh, if, they, if they come across knowledge of a corrupt organization, of racketeering, if this is the mafia to which it's being compared— I mean, what, would you expect them to just say, well, hell, That's most true. of that stuff happens well, in Sicily, yeah. so and, it's not, not and, none of our business. And this was not yeah, an investigation. Yeah, I would actually say that. I this mean, was... like, do we go to Russia now because there's, you know, uh, corrupt Russian corporations there and they do some business in the United States? Now we're going to go after them? I mean, where does this stop and why FIFA? Like, it just well, seems like— I'll, I'll, well I'll tell you, I mean, why FIFA? This is the largest athletic organization on the planet. So this is—I don't think this is quite the same as, you know— the Justice Department going after uh, a few baseball players who are, you know, trying out a new workout regime. I will say, though, that this investigation didn't originate uh, as an investigation into FIFA. This was something they stumbled upon. And so what Dan said, what are they supposed to do uh, at that point? You know, they've, they have leads, and are they supposed to turn a blind eye on just an incredible level of, of corruption um, among some of the leaders of these CONCAFs, CONCAF uh, organizations? What's CONCAF? Uh, don't make me, another, don't, don't okay, make me do that. All right. All right. I think it's time to move on to the lightning round. Dan, you want to set it up for us? The lightning round is where we choose the most 
unbelievably attractive. No, the lightning round where we just try to. Um, gosh, I don't. I don't quite have it today, everybody. <laughs> the lightning round. It's a good round. thing it's not live. I'm thinking about lightning bugs. I always like to see lightning bugs during the summer in the Midwest. Okay, uh, the lightning round where we look for a story that may be a little bit off the radar that we try to um, give our listeners, uh, put it on their radar, and maybe give them a little bit of insight into something interesting we've been thinking about. Why don't you kick it off for us? So I'm going to preempt Guy just a little bit here, but not really. I think the Warriors deserve some love because we have a team going to the National Basketball Association, the association finals for the first time in 40 years. That's an epic accomplishment in in perhaps the archetypal American sport. Now and we could debate that next time. It and, is, and, and I will also say an incredible accomplishment that they did this with pretty much the same team that lost in the first round of the Western Conference playoffs last year. They didn't go out and get a LeBron or, you know, so th- that the internal uh, improvements are impressive. But I've also have, I've brought from my lightning round a story from the last time they made the finals, 1975. Shows you how much professional sports have changed. That in 1975, they were unable to book a home game at their own arena in Oakland. So they had to move to the Cow Palace in Daly City. Where, yeah, so Oakland, back up the Oakland Coliseum Arena, was booked for an ice dancing show. So they had to move to the Cow Palace in Daly City and rearranged the schedule of the NBA Finals because the Cow Palace was booked with a karate competition that they would not move. Yeah, so... So, I mean, mean, that either either displays to you the explosion of professional sports in the last 40 years or the value of a good scheduler. The NBA (laughs) came in second to an ice show and a karate competition. No more. That feels sort of... How far we've come. All right. Well, mine is um, about pot. We ran a really great story today by uh, KQED's reporter Beth Willon, and it was about, uh, you know, we're sort of maybe gearing up to pass a proposition next year that will legalize the recreational use of cannabis. Oh, joy. Yeah, seems like it would be, right? Especially in California, which we've been known, you know, Humboldt County is where she went to, uh, sort of maybe arguably one of the pot-growing capitals of the world, and you would think they'd be rejoicing, but it's sort but. of... But? But it's sort of interesting how, uh, you know, there are all these sort of unintended consequences, even with things that you think are good news. And the growers there are worried about corporations moving in, uh, big guys like Philip Morris, you know, using their... Market big guys like, and- yeah, their market clout to move into the pot industry. And then also another thing that Gavin Newsom brought up, which is maybe if we tax the pot too much... It could keep the underground or black market alive. So just sort of some interesting things to think about as we're going down this path. All, All right. right. Fab. Awesome. Thank, well, thank you for uh, for having me. You've been listening to Smart Mouth with Dan Brecky, editor of KQED's News Fix, Guy Marzorati, producer of The California Report, and I'm Queenie Kim.